So I think welcome to Backstage Mesh. Yes, thank you for having me. Great. So let's begin. So to all our listeners, uh, let me briefly talk about uh, Mesh and let me introduce uh, all of you to him. Mesh Stein is a former VP at Goldman Sachs who jumped into porn to help nonprofits find and find the best technology and services. Mitch found his passion for non-profits when participating in the Northeast AIDS ride with his dad in honor of his late uncle Marlin. That passion evolved into Pond, the only place where non-profits get paid to spend their time discovering tools, technology and services to help the organizations thrive. Today, Pond has over 600 active members and non-profits save an average of 50% on their purchases while vendors see their sales cycles cut in half. This is highly innovative Mitch. and i really look forward to speaking to you on this subject now same here thank you for having me great to be here great uh, so mesh uh, can you talk about your journey uh, to begin with all these years highlight some of the defining moments in your in your career professional career sure yeah so i actually uh, had a, a strange path to get here i started off as an investment banker for 7 years so i used to be a a colleague of shashanks back in the day uh at goldman sachs and i spent about 7 years there in a few different jobs um but i was most recently as a an a technology and an internet software investment banker um outside of work i was doing a lot of nonprofit work like you mentioned the the northeast aids ride i'm on the board at the lgbt center um and i just started getting more involved with nonprofit work and also realizing I think there's a, a misconception that philanthropy happens when you're old and <laughs> that old people are that once they've made their money they get to give back and do something good um when actually there's so much to be done even at a young age so in my early and mid 20s it was raising hundreds of thousands of dollars for the center um through recycling efforts and fundraising events and um I just felt this like deep passion for it and I'm, I'm sure many of you have felt you know once you start doing something that you know you really care about it's just a totally different experience and so it, I did a lot of soul searching of like is this am I meant to go be a fundraiser should I be fundraising for this organization or another and I just felt like there was more like there was more I could do to impact more organizations and more causes just given my background understanding markets and working with technology um and then the kind of light bulb moment was when i heard the organization talk about ways that they found new software and as they described it to me it was like oh yeah you know you just call a few friends you write something on facebook and a few people respond and then you do like a million demos and then you usually pay a consultant and then we kind of found out they were getting kickbacks from the people they directed us towards and and like at the end of the day they end up spending 50 grand on an out of the box software solution. And so you're like, well this doesn't seem right. There has to be a better way and I, that just became what I couldn't sleep at night over. And I would just started asking lots of people and then what really sealed the deal for me in needing to go do something in this space was how many people I shared this with who just said, "Well yeah, but you know, that's a nonprofit." So of course they're behind like of course things don't work well like of course they don't have good tech like that's just what nonprofits are and that sort of like that attitude absolutely infuriated me because i'd seen the amazing people that worked these organizations and and i obviously was asking friends and family to give away their hard earned money to a cause i cared about 
And to think that I was, that people were just expecting it to not be used well or not have the maximum impact drove me crazy. So I felt like there was a better way. And I'd see, worked with and seen so many marketplaces uh, in my time at Goldman, you know, auto marketplaces, homes, um, travel, I mean, even luxury fashion. There are these really big ticket items that can be uh, sold and facilitated on the internet. I know, shocking, right? <laughs> and it seems like people think it seems strange to buy B2B solutions um, in an organized marketplace because we've never had one. We've never, you've never had an Amazon for how you run your business, right? It's just scattered across a bunch of different places. You're mostly going direct to any one company. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity for that kind of online marketplace for B2B um, services and, and software and all kinds of solutions. And we're starting where it's needed most and it's the most disorganized and, and fragmented and that's the nonprofit sector. Well, uh, that's, that's uh, quite interesting and fascinating as well, Mish. Uh, but uh, if I were to take a step back, right, and we just wanted to understand one more aspect that you were having a great corporate life. Was it because even Shashank uh, was at Goldman earlier. So is it something to do with Goldman that you guys got into entrepreneurship or, you know, there was something else as well? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'd love to hear Shashank's like viewpoint on it. I think especially once I moved into the tech banking practice, we were doing a lot of IPOs and, and working with a lot of founder-led businesses. I had previously worked in the natural resources space for my first job. There are no founder-led power and utility businesses. <laughs> so it was a very different dynamic. Um, and it all of a sudden just seemed so much more real that there are people out there that start their own businesses. And like, it didn't seem so out of reach. Um, I also think, you know, I had the chance in the middle of my time there to work in the CEO's office. So I was um, running client strategy for Lloyd Blankfein for his last year as CEO. And when I had my exit interview, he asked me when I was moving to my next role, he was like, well, what was your favorite part of this of our job together? And I told, looked at him and I said, well, I now know that I can do your job. <laughs> and he just kind of laughed at me because, you know, I didn't mean like, oh, I'm taking over right now. But it's just that once you once you you can't be what you can't see. And once you recognize that people doing these things are also just human beings that put their pants on one leg at a time, they're really smart and they work really hard. But. So, you know, I can do that too. And that I think a lot of those experiences inform me that if there's something you want to go change in the world, that, that that's what it takes. That like, that means you are qualified to be a founder. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah, that's very well said, actually. Like, uh, I just want to add on to that. Like, uh, the common factor among Go Goldman people are uh, Goldman hire uh, best people, actually. So uh, I was, I was probably an exception over there, but, uh, most of the people are uh, are very smart in Goldman, so Mitch, Mitch was one of them, is one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also think, but it's tough, right? If you've been there too long, like you you referred to, like that quote-unquote, if you that was a video, I have heavy air quotes right now, that good life. So yeah. you, get, you get in this mindset where you think like the most important thing is your bonus the next year, right? Or your promotion. And so then when that's your priority, you are just you justify the crazy hours and like being ridiculously responsive to your bosses and your clients and yeah. i think it was a combination of me getting to a point where i was just like enough is enough and i and i was lucky <laughs> i didn't have a mortgage i wasn't married i didn't have kids 
because a lot of people end up on that like you know that cycle yeah. where like well no well i gotta get my next bonus because i just got this new apartment in, or my kid's just starting in a fifty thousand dollar you know preschool so yeah all this ridiculous stuff that's true so so mitch i think that that's what you said is interesting right i mean uh investment banking is a demanding job in a way right but so you were tuned into that and what led you to get into non-profits i mean as a sector because you you did touch base this earlier as well uh but non-profits is to be is seen in a very different light and invest banking is completely on the other side of the spectrum so how did you cope with the changes there yeah i mean i just operate under the philosophy that every every person should be treated like an investment banking client at Goldman. And that's how we've always operated our company at Pond. The customer service is the same if you're the CEO of GM or you run the local food bank. Um, I think that I bringing that philosophy ha has been really interesting to see how people, how that resonates with people who are normally left at the kids table, so to speak. Like that's why we named our podcast, the kids table where we interview nonprofit leaders because they're so often, um, you know, underestimated, overlooked, uh, people just think they're asking them for money and they forget about the amazing work they're doing and just how complex their jobs are. I mean, most, um, nonprofits have many more stakeholders than a normal for-profit business. The actual operations are more complex you know, beyond P&L, they're, they're managing, you know, impact, like, how are you achieving the goals you're setting out to? And how are your staff dealing with that, your leadership, your board, your community, the people who you serve in your organization. Um, and that's, a, that's actually a lot more complex. And especially when it comes to their technology needs, um, they're a business, they have all the exact same needs that a normal business would. And they need ways to manage their volunteers, manage their grants, manage their donors, um, manage their programs, like all the extra stuff on top of it. And people think that they're simpler and it's just not true. Interesting. Mm. So, so uh, Mitch, I think uh, when you talk about, uh, you know, when you created Pond, was it uh, in your mind that you wanted to create something like an Amazon for nonprofits? Was that the only thing or was it something else as well? Yeah, we've used a, a couple different like examples. Um, you know, one of the I tried to shorten the story, but I'll I'll share it now. Before I left Goldman, I was working on a um, a startup internally. So they had this program called Accelerate. They weren't very good with uh, creative branding. It was an accelerator called Accelerate, um, and you you were able to submit like a new product idea or a new um, a new business line and you could put a team together and there were like seven subsequent pitch rounds because they had like a thousand submissions and we got all the way to the end. And my idea was a nonprofit specific online banking product. And I um, thought that that was a great place to start to level up the tech stack. So I'm like, well, everybody loves money. <laughs> As every nonprofit tells you is they need to raise more money. So I noticed that pretty, also pretty much every nonprofit had an outrageous balance of cash in a non-interest bearing checking account at the end of the year. You, all of their tax filings are public, right? So um, I was like, there's a huge opportunity to help them optimize just their cash. Like that's all, you don't need to make any investments, you don't need to do anything just put your cash in an interest bearing account and you could be employing two more people. Like it's that simple. And um, 
so that was what we pitched. We got all the way to the final step in the process. And we did a week-long offsite with McKinsey to flesh out the business plan. And then um, we basically were told no at the last step. But the reason was really interesting because they told me that they just thought the go-to-market wasn't feasible. And what they meant by that is it's too fragmented. Salespeople at Goldman are expensive. And um, we don't think that we can build enough of a client base quick enough to get an ROI we would need as a big company to make this kind of investment. And it's totally fair. I don't disagree with them at all. Like it's really hard to start new things inside of a big business. Um, and what they said about the go-to-market, I just had this light bulb moment where I was like, well, I'm just one person at one company. And I'm like, I'm, I'm old relative to the Gen Zers coming in that care even more about impact in their jobs than I do. And that means that people are trying to do this everywhere around the country and around the world, you know, get their businesses to do more for the impact space. And um, that's keeping that innovation at bay everywhere because there isn't a better go to market. And if a there could be a distribution channel that organized the sector and made it more feasible to reach those customers, then that could provide an insane amount of efficiency and foster a ton of innovation in how we're solving these problems. So that was why I got fixated on the marketplace as what needed to happen. You know, what if you want to call it the Expedia, the Amazon, you know, I think there, there's a lot of examples. Functionally, the platform today is a lot more like an Angie's List or a Thumbtack, if people are familiar. So people use those platforms to find like a handyman to mount their TV. And we're saying, you can use Pond instead of a handyman, you're finding the right piece of software to manage your donors or a consultant or someone to do your grant writing for you. Like all of the, just all the things that you need to run an organization. We want you to be able to effortlessly find them on Pond and uh, get money to help pay for them. Wow. Uh, that, that's pretty interesting, uh, Mitch. And I'll pick up on your last sentence. But before that, uh, specifically about nonprofits. Uh, what are the broad challenges that nonprofits face? You you did mention about the technology, the fundraising, but if you can just detail a little bit for audiences. Yeah, yeah, I think um, you know I go back and forth on this because I, I like to talk about the sector specifically, and then I also like to remind everybody that it's still a lot of <laughs> bears a lot of similarities to the business world. But in general, and it's a huge sector, by the way. So before I start like generalizing. Um, for context, there's almost 2 million nonprofits in the United States alone, about 10 million globally. Um, in the United States, they spend over a trillion dollars a year and they employ almost 23 million people. So it is a humongous part of our economy. Um, and so it's tough to generalize. But if I can, in general, I would say that we find people in the nonprofit space because the the structure is to do the most with the least, right? You want, the concept is like, you want your dollar to go as far as possible. And if you think about that in comparison to a for-profit business, when your goal is maximizing profit, you are trying to do the least for the most. You want the highest margin and a nonprofit operates in the exact opposite fashion. So the result is that you're, you operate very lean, your people are overworked, wearing multiple hats, and um, they're underpaid. So oftentimes you're getting people that care a lot and their backgrounds often are social work, education, right? Um, working in government. And um, they're not necessarily interested in a high paying tech job because they like helping people. 
Um, and so what that means is you've got people whose backgrounds is usually not one that are very familiar with technology. Or um, if you've always worked in the nonprofit space, you're not, uh, people don't like change. And, and tech and innovation is all about accepting and embracing and experimenting with change. Um, so what we found is we built a few different structures is there was really four key barriers to better adoption that we felt like there was something we could do about. And those are primarily time, which again, these are, you'll all maybe think like, well, yeah, I have these barriers too. I would just say in the nonprofit space, it's just the most extreme. Um, so time, everyone has limited bandwidth. They're wearing a lot of hats, as I mentioned. So it, you have to make sure the platform actually saves them time or, or if possible, like gives them time back. That's how we always thought about setting the bar for ourselves. Uh, the other is just that familiarity or, or awareness. Like they don't even, oftentimes they don't know the language you're using when it comes to technology. So it's very intimidating um, and kind of, you know, puts people off. Um, and the other thing is just budget. Like you just frankly don't have as much budget or you just assume you can't afford it, right? You've just got a mindset of like, oh no, we can't afford anything new. Even if something new could save you money, right? Or provide a new source of, of revenue. Um, but there's that scarcity mindset where you don't even think about what could be better because you assume um, it's not going to be possible to afford it. And the last piece is trust. And this is something that I think all of us feel, but with the digital advertising era at like a crescendo, I think it's starting to wane. But just that ability for anyone to get like every last piece of information on you and follow you around the internet and you get like cold calls constantly and spam emails constantly, um, that has felt really hard in the nonprofit space and it just erodes trust. And so those four barriers of time, awareness, uh, budget and trust are something we felt like we could really solve uh, with an organized marketplace that provided a more trustworthy um, and comfortable connection to new tools, new ideas, um, and just really be a helping hand for people. Well, that that was interesting, Mitch, because I think uh, when we talk about nonprofits, nonprofits don't necessarily mean they are for losses, right? I mean, but but, yeah. but I completely <laughs> understand the reluctance uh, to accept some new things uh, in the sector, right? And it due to due to multiple reasons. But I wanted to pick on your previous uh, response where you said you actually pay non-profits for browsing on your uh, marketplace. I mean, how, how this business model actually came up? This I'm hearing it for the first time in non-profit. Yeah. Yeah. So it's funny. I was, um, I was in a founder group a little over, it was like a, almost a year and a half ago and we were spitballing different ideas and there was someone in the group who was like, you know, I think I'm going to start a marketplace for Harvard MBA students, like bit small businesses can rent them, rent their like brains for 30 minutes and have them think through a business problem for them. And it's just like, you know, can you monetize someone's time in a way that they're not used to because they're just a student, but they have a lot to offer. Um, and for whatever reason, when they said that it just something totally clicked in my head where I was like, well, people pay for my time all the time, but they're just paying Google and Facebook for my time and attention. No one ever pays me and I've got value. Uh, you know, if I'm interested in buying something, I have a ton of value, right? I'm a hot lead that Google's selling my like bottom of funnel keyword clicks. And it all of a sudden dawned on me that if we could just capture a nonprofit like interest areas and 
get them to share their problems that they're having in a way that they become a lead, but that they're, they are retaining the value of being a lead. So could we kind of funnel that marketing dollar that would normally be spent to these big tech platforms and just put it into people's pockets in a way that incentivizes them to learn and to share more because that from the market's perspective is going to make them a better buyer. They're going to know what they need. They're going to, so we are delivering value by educating, by making people comfortable and then ensuring success, right? By having an ongoing relationship with them around the stuff that they buy and the things that they use so that we can provide better information and direction to the next user. Mitch, that's a great thought actually. Like, uh, I remember looking up like, uh, have you seen like uh, how expensive it's uh, to buy certain keywords on Google search? That, uh, yeah, insurance? That, <laughs> that's why we, our first, um, you know, a nonprofit gets $100 for, for doing a sales meeting through Pond. So if they're in the market for a new CRM or, you know, peer-to-peer fundraising platform, whatever it is, um, they can post that need and then vendors can reach out to them. And we set the price at $100 per meeting because the cost of a Google AdWord, to be the top Google AdWord for nonprofit CRM was $100 per click. And that didn't matter if it was my grandmother clicking on it or an eight-year-old in an elementary school, right? It's just indiscriminate. And you're like, wow, this is actually, we all think of Google as like the end-all be-all. And it's like, actually, it's a really inefficient wasteful model and where's the money going <laughs> yeah i think it's just about the intent right like google searches yeah. like you uh, they uh, they market the intent and the timing of it and then you already have a marketplace if somebody's coming on your marketplace the intent is already there like he or she is in the marketplace for buying something mm-hmm. and and coming there because they now have new incentive too Right. Like if you yeah. want me to take my time to learn about your product, I better get rewarded for it because I don't have extra time and I'm already underpaid for my time. Right. So there's a, that's the attitude that most leaders in the nonprofit space have um, is it's like the trade off. And that's the crazy thing, too. Like I've had what people don't realize is, you know, I've had calls with a friend who runs a, a community center in Kensington uh, neighborhood of Philadelphia, which is the highest murder rate in the country. Um, and horrible horrible opioid epidemic issues happening there and she like missed our call we had a call set up she just completely missed it and she calls me up two hours later and she's like i'm so sorry i can't believe i missed our call i had uh like a mom and her child show up at the community center and they had just gotten beaten by her husband and i had to like emergency find them some housing and i was just like oh my God, do not apologize to me. <laughs> like, but, but you think about the, the time trade-off for these people of like what they're actually doing with their day. And then if you want them to get on the phone to learn about your new like AI donation tool, you, like, you should give them some, some reason to talk to you uh, and justify taking their time away from that mission they're serving. Well, this is, this is awesome, Mish, because especially this, I, would, I wanted to highlight this fact because there are students who are listening us live right now. And here is a classic case where you've not, even, not only spot the idea about a particular business opportunity, but what you did was how to cultivate your so-called uh, clients in a way it compels them to at least spend time and give time to understand a product offering. So I think it's an amazing way you have created a marketplace in its first place. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, for the students, I, I think um, 
there's also when I've become a bit of like a student, a startup student through the process. And so I've listened to a million podcasts and read a ton of books and everything. And I think there's a lot of people that want to, sh- they want to lay out the framework of startups and like, here's how businesses run and they can be an ad driven business or they can be this, they can be a subscription. And those are the options. And you know, th- those, there's only these problems you can solve. And I would just say the way I've always approached it has been to like not think outside the box, but forget about the box. Yeah. Right? Like, when we came across the, when we came across the problem that was like, we, we need to come up with a way to give people time back and pay them for it. And most people like, that's ridiculous, right? Like you could, there's just no way to do that. It's ridiculous. And we're like, well, no, if you actually think about it, there's ways to rethink these problems. Um, and usually when someone says that's just the way it works or that can't be done, it's because the current status quo benefits them. Right. So I would just say never like, don't stop thinking bigger. I mean, there is an amazing example from uh, the Airbnb founders who they would do this exercise and they're like, okay, what's the single worst experience someone could have at Airbnb? It's like your flight gets canceled. You end up taking like a camel to get to your, your spot. And then the buildings burn down to the ground and you like sleep on the street. They're like, just be completely extreme. And like for fun, they go, okay, what would a two, what would a three be? What would a four? And then they get up to like, okay, a 15 is that you like hop on a spaceship with Elon Musk and you're like, you know, riding with Beyonce and just like making it completely crazy. And we basically did the same thing with our own initial product. But instead of thinking of stuff that we could never do, we were like, Oh, what if they could just get paid so that they did, they could afford these things? You know, and then we're like, well, maybe there is a way we could do that. So that exercise of going to the moon, literally, <laughs> with your product idea, sometimes it, you realize things aren't as crazy as they seem. Wow, wow. So, in fact, Shashank has put in the link as well how expensive it is to get the Google AdWords, right? Uh, and, and you actually spot the right place. But Mitch, when you were first, uh, you know, reaching out to the brands, uh, what was your selling proposition? Um, and how, how did they get convinced to begin with? Yeah, so we just made it as easy as possible for everyone to get engaged. So there was no cost to join. Um, you only paid if and when you were connecting with someone that you hand selected as a good lead based on the information they were provided. And we were doing the work to verify everyone that was using the platform. And the money stays on the platform. Right. So that's part of what makes it work because it's not just like going into their pocket, which could lead to a lot of bad incentives, but they have to use it on pond. So, you know, that there it's, it's not just like some random stranger posting something because they're going to have to use it on something for their nonprofit. You know? Um, and so because of those safeguards that helped a lot and just practically speaking, because I think there's always that chicken and egg issue for any marketplace. Um, what we did was I had been getting to know, we had an initial product, which we don't need to go into. It didn't go very well. And so, uh, about nine months in, we ditched it. We built something new on bubble in like three days, which is really the core use case of what pond still is today. Um, but we, I took that to several of the nonprofits I'd met and I was like, Hey, um, can we just get on the phone for 10 minutes? And if you tell me a little bit about problems you're having, I'm just going to make a profile for you. And so I did that for 30 people over the course of like a week and a half. And then I went back to several of the vendors that I had met and was like, hey, wouldn't you want to talk to this development director looking for a new donor database? That's what you do. <laughs> like, here's your profile. You can join Pond. And so we got about 20 vendors, technology vendors to join in three days. And that was the point where I was like, oh, okay, we need to go actually build something. This is working. And so... <laughs> 
we hired another engineer and spent the next like two months actually putting a platform together that wasn't on bubble. Um, and for those who don't know, bubble is a no code um, tool. It's super useful for testing new ideas. It's also getting more and more sophisticated by the day. So you can use it for a lot longer now than even when we were using it um, in terms of its scalability. But um, but yeah, that was like how we just sort of got off the races. And then it's just one of those things, once you're like a thing, the vendor then wants to be there. And as long as the hurdles are low, um, that's what makes it work. And we, and we had to go through a, another bit of a pivot just a few months ago because we were seeing the vendor usage rates declining. And we ultimately attribute it to that pay per meeting model where in concept it's great because that's what they do with Google clicks, but they have a lot less agency on the Google clicks, right? So if the if the if Google asked them every time someone was about to click on something, if they'd like to pay for it, they would feel really differently than just getting the bill. <laughs> and so since using Pond was so personal, we saw like people's usage would wane over time as they didn't like paying for it. Um, and as we started interviewing people, we realized like, oh well, everyone would rather just pay for actually winning business and they'd pay a lot more than for a lead and we're like well what could we do even better than the google model and go all the way to say you'll only pay for your lead if you win them as a customer and now that we're earning more money off of those transactions we can now credit and reward our members for our nonprofit members for an even wider range of activities and experiences so that we kicked off a few weeks ago and started this like Angie's List or Thumbtack List um, tool where you can create discrete projects uh, for all your different needs. And that also has really helped to bring on new vendors because um, we're basically saying it's free to join. You can see all the details of what this person wants and needs. And if you want to talk to them, you can do that today. You just have to sign our you know, channel partnership agreement, which most of them already have with a lot of other companies. So it's a copy paste of like, oh yeah, we always give a 20% referral fee to partners we have that bring us business. And so we're just sort of piggybacking on that structure that already exists, but we're saying, and then the bulk of that is going to go to benefit the customer you're gaining as well. So the show after this call, you are listing backstage on that platform, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, absolutely. In fact, I was, I was wondering that uh, what Mitch has uh, created, this is a classic case study in itself you know, where he's, this model could be used even in for-profit businesses as well. So, Mitch, do you have these as expansion plans in future? Yeah, you know, um, we definitely do. I think I, uh, I'm i trying not to look too far. As, as Shashank and I know from our startup classroom together, it's like you need to focus on what you're doing now and do really, really well. But what we know is that nonprofits, are, I've said this over and over again, nonprofits are businesses, right? And we want every B2B SaaS and service provider to, to be there to provide them tools and services. And once they're there, which by the way, it's a lot easier to engage. There are a bazillion lead generation people out there. They, they message me on LinkedIn all the time. So it's really hard to break through. You know, it's helpful to break through the noise when you tell people you're helping nonprofits. All yeah. of a sudden people are more interested. And a lot of these bigger companies are starting departments to reach nonprofit customers because what do their like 22 year old recent college grads care about, right? That they are like doing good in the world with their product and investors more and more care about that. And so they're all starting these like social impact programs 
And they're, even though they're starting that, they're in the same place that Goldman was three years ago when I was talking to them, which is, we don't actually know how to reach these customers, right? We'll, we'll offer a discount. Okay, a discount's like 5% of the way there of actually getting your product to have an impact with the customer using it correctly. Um, and so it's this really interesting entry point with the Salesforce, HubSpot, Asanas of the world um, to get engaged with us because I know, just using HubSpot as one example, to be a, a true business partner of HubSpot, you have to be providing them 500 leads a month, okay? How on earth, if, if I was a ge generic startup and small business, you know, tools and services marketplace, if I didn't have the HubSpots and the MailChimps and the Stripes of the world, I would go out of business immediately because those are the things that every small business or startup uses, but it's impossible to engage them until you have a huge audience. So there's like this impossibility of the, and that's my theory, by the way, on why the Amazon, the B2B Amazon doesn't exist. Because so I think that the, the chicken and egg is too big. And that's why I think that the nonprofit market as the starting point is kind of the, the Trojan horse to that chicken and egg problem, where once you have all of the vendors engaged, they're used to your system, they're on the platform already, they're going to be asking us to expand it to small businesses and startups. True, true, 100%. So, uh, Mitch, I mean, uh, what would the world look like if you're wildly successful in this domain now? Oh, I love that question. Um, <laughs> that's a fun one. Uh, I Okay, if I can provide a bit of like an example, because I just view this as a, this is just a fundamental new model, right? And, and I don't mean that to sound arrogant to think that we've like come up with a new business model, but I truly do think that this is new. Um, and you said that you could see this so easily extending to startups and small businesses. Of course, anytime I, as a startup founder, anytime I'm looking for a new podcasting platform, right? I would prefer to just write quickly everything that I need and I'm looking for and have people reach out to me knowing what I'm looking for. So they tell me the relevant information about their product. Um, but what prevents like you as an individual customer from also wanting to do the same thing for yourself? Like, I don't know if, you, if you've like bought a car or a house recently or even an insurance product, like you would rather just put out there what you need and have people compete to talk to you and pay you for your time through a central uh, marketplace. And so I like to think of the example of if I'm shopping for, I'm looking in my living room right now, if I need a new couch in here, um, I'd be incentivized to share as much information as possible because I would want the most relevant vendors coming to me with their offering. So I would want to share, here's what my old couch looked like. Here's what I don't like about it. Here's the rest of the stuff in my apartment. Here are all the pictures. Here are couches my friends have that I like, right? And we're all connected on this platform. And so maybe I get 10 different couch vendors from around the world who want to tell me about this amazing couch that they have. And if I have the time, I'll take all 10 you know, meetings and learn about them. And I would get $100 for each one. But what if the couch was only $1,000? How much money did I have to start with to afford that couch? And what you're proving is what Facebook and Google have already shown us, that it doesn't matter if you're in a small village in India or you're sitting in Manhattan, your time has value. Your time and attention and intention fundamentally has value. 
and it's being taken from us as opposed to given to us. And I think there's an opportunity to completely shift that paradigm for people to experience the value in their own time in a way that uh, typically just gets taken. Absolutely, Mitch. Absolutely. I think it was, uh, you know, I, I could actually think that, okay, what if there was some some uh, marketplace out there to actually provide these services? And I think you're bang on on that. So, uh, Mitch, there are a few questions uh, from the audiences, and I'll take, uh, you know, uh, some of them. So, there's this uh, listener named Ashi, and uh, she wants to know, so what advice would you give in terms of skills to a fresher looking to start the journey in nonprofits? Well, first, and thank you for the question. First thing I'd say is my, my favorite quote, which I use almost every day, and I still don't know who to attribute it to, but there's no such thing as good advice or only good stories. So don't, don't try to do something someone else tells you to do or has done. Um, learn from other people's experiences and put them in your own context, uh, would just be what I'd say about advice in general. Um, but skills and getting started in the nonprofit space, I mean, to me, I think it is all about identifying your passion. So if you um, know what you're passionate about, then you're going to be most successful in serving that. And I think the nonprofit space is so flexible. Like, it's hard. It's not like the tech world, I'd say, where you're sort of like, I need to start off as a product manager doing user testing, like getting really specific on how you start. I think it's much better to be broad because in all the roles in the nonprofit space, you're going to be expected to wear a lot of hats anyway. So breadth of experience and skill set is more important in my mind than um, than being like crazy good at database management or like one specific thing. But it's better if you have familiarity. And so to that end, you know, especially if you're thinking like first roles or internships, I would just take whatever you can that you can roll up your sleeves and just work on like a ton of different things at the organization. Um, I think those are going to be best served. And then you're going to have the best sense for the next role and the next role based on seeing a lot of stuff at the organization. True, true. Then there is another listener, Ayush, and he's asking, sir, do you recommend any courses or podcasts for students looking to learn more about the nonprofit domain? I mean, definitely check out our podcast, The Kids Table, if I can shamelessly plug it here. But what we do is we, the whole um, premise is that you always hear startup founders and business leaders on podcasts. Where is the nonprofit leader in that conversation? Because they actually have a ton that business leaders should be learning from them too. So we set it up to be really high quality storytelling of individual nonprofit leaders and then making sure that we're bringing to the, the forefront the message on leadership and culture and organizational values that they have to deliver. So um, we've done 20 podcasts in two different cities and we're working on a few different seasons. And then we also <clears throat> run a weekly webinar, um, which I'd recommend anyone interested in the nonprofit space. That's every Thursday, although it's at noon Eastern. So if a bunch of you in India, you might need to catch the replay. <laughs> um, uh, unless you're early risers, um, but that we host that on um, LinkedIn Live, YouTube Live, Facebook Live, and we turn that into a podcast as well. And it's in the same stream as um, the kids table, uh, the one-on-one interviews. And those are webinar panels. We do them on 
grants. We're doing one this week on Thursday on donor data. Last week, we talked about TikTok for nonprofits. Like we really cover the, the gambit. Um, otherwise, I mean, there's a, there's a handful of good uh, nonprofit podcasts that are my personal favorite is We Are For Good. They do three episodes a week. They cover a super broad range of topics. They're really great people. Um, yeah, I would say those would be my, my two biggest recommendations. In fact, we'll also have a few of your kids' table loaded onto backstage as well on your definite on your specific pawns backstage. Oh, awesome. Uh, Mitch, uh, there is another question from Arvind. Uh, and he's asking that he was going through your LinkedIn profile and noticed that you have a teaching experience too. So he just want to know how was it like teaching at Wharton School? Yeah, so I was I was just a, a teacher's assistant for two semesters. Um, and it was funny because I was a TA for MBA students and I was an undergrad. <laughs> so uh, it was a funny dynamic. It also reassured me that I did not need to go get my MBA. <laughs> Whenever, whenever someone asked me if I was going to get my MBA, I was like, well, I already took all the same classes and I actually taught MBA students. So I think I'm good. Um, but no, I, I, uh, it, it's an interesting experience to be on that side of a class, right? You're used to just being the student. And then all of a sudden <clears throat> you see how so many other people are experiencing the same content. Um, and it makes you like, I, I like to think of myself as a pretty like lateral thinker, which not everybody is. So I can pretty quickly move to understand the person next to me's viewpoint on what I'm looking at or the person next to them and trying to be empathetic with other people's viewpoints on these, on these issues. Um, and so I think being a teacher does a really good job of that because you have to explain something and then hear it back through, you know, 20, 30, 40 different people's eyes and perspectives and voice. And it helps you hone your communication style to make something um, more relevant to a broader range of audience. Um, so yeah, I think that's the most valuable thing. I also learned that MBA students are pretty lazy and most of them would just come to my office hours asking for the answers. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. So Mitch, uh, one last question before we allow you to go, uh, an entrepreneur is always in an action action mode. So just want to know how do you unwind? <laughs> Oh, that's a great question. Uh, uh, if you have an answer, I would love to hear that because that's definitely been a challenge lately. Um, I, I was an athlete in college, so I was on the heavyweight rowing team at Penn. Um, so for me, I've always had a connection to exercise as a way to just disconnect and unwind. Although I'm saying that like having skipped my workout this morning and <laughs> choosing to sleep in. So uh, it's not universally true. Um, and I just, I'm a people lover. So Get, I just need to like go hang out with some friends and, and get out. And to me, that also, I'm very much an extrovert. So that's how I fill my cup is getting around other people and trying to not talk about work. But um, I don't know. The reality is like, and it's, it's not like a hustle culture thing. It's just when you're completely obsessed with what you're working on, it's, it's hard to put down and it's okay. Like that's how... That's where you, that's like when you're in the crucible of it all, right? Like that's when you're creating, you're outrageously productive because you're so passionate about what you're doing. Um, so I kind of ascribe to the make hay while the sun is shining mentality of, of startup work. Um, and when, when I, when I'm burned, when I'm feeling burnt out, I do take, like, I do take the time. I take a day off and I really try to disconnect, but when I'm in it and feeling good, I try to really sprint.
Awesome, awesome, Mitch. We'll, we will not take much time of yours now. I think you can straight away head to gym, right? I think it's it's early morning. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And I'm sorry again to keep everybody waiting. I apologize for my technical difficulties. No, but it was it was lovely having you here on backstage, Mitch. I think we learned so much uh, about nonprofits, especially the way innovative models you've worked upon. I think wish you all the success, and we hope you replicate this in the for-profit world as well pretty soon. Yes, well, we'll be seeing you there soon. Hope to have you searching for stuff on ponds, not too too distant future. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Thank you, Mitch. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Thank you, listeners, right. for joining us bye. today.